and I want to join John in welcoming everyone. Uh, John and I have known each other a long, long time, almost 25 years now, which is hard to believe uh, how quickly they get, a, get away. And yet John never ceases to surprise me. Uh, I've been to a lot of church services. I remember a church that I was a part of in its earlier days before I was a part of it. Whenever it was time for church to start, they had a sign right up on the back of the wall behind the preacher that said, Silent. It was a lit sign. Well, at least an elder would go right at church time and would hit the light. The light would come on and everybody would get quiet. And then John would get up and say, let's rock this place. Amen. Now, the, the reason John said that this morning is he was preparing you for my preaching. Okay. He was hoping Blake could wake you up enough that you could survive for a little while. You know, people ask me sometimes, does it bother you when people go to sleep during one of your sermons? And the answer is no. I've gone asleep a couple of times during my sermons. I mean, they... but but my fat best, one of my best stories about John is we're in a staff meeting years and years and years ago, and John is sitting right to my right at the desk. Secretary's in there. John's in there. Another minister's in there. I'm in there. And I'm having a conversation with John. I mean, he is, I can touch him. Okay, that's how close he is. And John's sitting there, and he's like this right here, and he's listening to me as I talk to him, and his eyes go shut. And I'm talking, and his eyes are slut. He's like this right here. You know what I mean? and, and finally, I looked at the secretary, and I said, I think he's going to sleep. I'm talking to him right here. He's going to sleep. And so I, I poked him, and sure enough, he woke up and said, oh, I'm sorry, did I go to sleep? John, true story, isn't it? True story. That actually happened. And, and I don't know if John was just so tired or if I was just so boring. It, it sent him off. All right. Uh, we are finishing today a two-part. I wanted to do a two-part follow-up to our series on Matthew. We, we spent several months looking at Jesus, the master disciple maker, and, and we finished up Matthew, and I wanted to just kind of ask this question. So what did... What did the disciples do once Jesus was gone? How did they respond to the master disciple maker? And, and of course, if you get to the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're not sure how they're going to respond. I mean, these guys are in chaos. They're with, you know, another hundred disciples or so, and they're trying to figure out what does it mean to live now that Jesus has left us? And so Luke writes in his second volume, the book of Acts, he writes how that he had already talked about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. But he gave instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And we looked at that last week. And basically I broke chapter 1 down into three points, which is Jesus told them to wait for the gift that God promised, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see how important that is today in Acts chapter 2, that they then follow God's plan. He didn't leave without a plan, with them without a plan. He said, you're going to be witnesses of mine in Jerusalem first. Then you're going to move to Judea, which is the province Jerusalem is in. Then you're going to move to Samaria, just to the north, which is half Jew, half Gentile. And then you're going to move all throughout the world. And if you read the book of Acts, that's exactly what they did. 
I mean, Acts chapter 2, they start in Jerusalem. They expand into Judea. By Acts 8, they're going into Samaria. And then by Acts 13, actually even Acts 11, they're starting to go out into the Gentile world. And so you have promise, you have plan. And then number three, the Holy Spirit gifts and places people where he needs them. They had 11 apostles. They needed 12. And so Peter stood up and said, we need a replacement. And they nominated two brothers who had been with them the entire time, witnesses of the resurrection. They cast lots and it fell on Matthias. And Matthias joined the 12. We come now to Acts chapter 2. And Jesus, before leaving, had told the apostles, do not leave Jerusalem. He had ascended from the Mount of Olives right to the east of Jerusalem. And he says, don't leave Jerusalem. You wait right here. And, and that time period is about a week. I mean, Jesus had been 40 days appearing to the apostles, appearing to 500 disciples at one time, appearing to members of his family like James, his half-brother. And so Jesus had been making appearances all the way up in Galilee. He's back now down in Jerusalem. He ascends to heaven from the Mount of Olives after telling them, wait. And so they wait for about a week. And then the world begins to be turned from upside down to right side up as God begins to act. Chapter 2 of Acts begins with these simple words. When the day of Pentecost came. Now, again, for a lot of us Gentiles, Pentecost doesn't mean anything. But Pentecost literally means 50 days. It is 50 days after the first fruits of Passover. And so it arrives sometimes in late May, early June. It's a big celebration the Jews put on. I mean, it was where the first wheat crops are starting to come in. The, the climate over there is, is very moderate, kind of like southern Georgia, northern Florida. And so wheat would start to, you know, uh, come to fruition about the end of May, early June. And so they're fixing to celebrate the wheat crops. They're excited. They come together for this giant celebration in Jerusalem. One of three days, one of three days that Jews, least Jewish men, were supposed to come to Jerusalem. Now, they've been scattered all around the world, and now they can't make all the celebrations, but some would be there almost every one of the three holidays from all over the world as they made the trek back to Jerusalem. Now, you could read this, and think, well, it's just coincidental. And if you did, wow, what a mistake you would be making. Because if there's anything found in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it is that it's a part of the plan of God. God had waited for this day. God had planned, had prepared. The apostles are there, and now something huge is fixing to take place. And to underscore it, Luke says, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation. In other words, there have been people coming back during the month of May, middle part of May, showing up in Jerusalem. Why? To celebrate Pentecost. You know, it's kind of like us in Thanksgiving. I mean, how many of us travel for Thanksgiving? For 40-something years, I would go to my grandmother's house down in North Mississippi for Thanksgiving. I remember my, my mother one time saying, I wish we could celebrate Thanksgiving at our house just once. I said, Grand I said, Mom, we've been doing grandmothers for 40-something years. When she dies, we'll do our house. 
And she finally died, and we did it at our house, you know. But mom's like, why do we always have to go to your grandmother's? And I'm like, that's just what we do, okay? The Jews did the same thing. And they have been pouring into Jerusalem now for days from all over the world. In fact, he goes on and he says, let me tell you where they came from. They came from Parthia, from, from uh, where the Medes and the Elamites live, from Mesopotamia, from Cappadocia and Pontus. I mean, you get this list of all these countries that you hope you don't have to read in Bible class. Okay, please don't make me pronounce these names. But if you throw up a map, these eras point to you all the nations that were represented on the day of Pentecost. I mean, people had come from the north, from the west, from the east, from the south. They had poured in. Long. I mean, do you think it's an accident? And I've got to wonder if as the, as the crowds kept coming in, if some of the local people began to say, wow, there's a larger crowd this year for Pentecost than past years. And of course, if you're an Old Testament person like Stan is, you know good and well that something's going on here. That If you go back to the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis, okay, is something fixing to be reversed? Yes, big time. And so God's plan is being worked out. And then notice the text, suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind. And let me make a quick reminder. The word wind in, in Greek and in Hebrew is the same as the word spirit. In other words, breath, you breathing right now. When you breathe, you are blowing out pneuma. You're blowing out air. When the wind blows, it's pneuma. And the Spirit of God is pneuma. And, and so all at once, a violent, strong, powerful wind, maybe, spirit, maybe both came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were seated, sitting, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to each one of them. In other words, here they are in the house. You've got the twelve. All at once, this noise sounds like wind, and it sounds like a violent wind, like a, a hurricane or a tornado, if you can imagine that. And then all at once, fire appears, and this fire appears in the midst of them and then begins to split off, coming to, to land on, on top of each of their heads. And you know, they've got to be thinking, what in the world is going on? Now, if they'd read their Old Testament, which they obviously had, their Bible, images of Sinai and God coming down was starting to pop in minds. Images of the tabernacle as the presence of God came from heaven in a fiery pillar and began to fill in a cloud the tabernacle or, or the temple when Solomon dedicated it. All of these images had to be coming in their mind as all at once they see fire coming down, separating. And what's going on? And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. All at once the promise of God was here. And, and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is a passage that is talking about this very event right here. Because what's God doing? What God is doing is filling his temple. I mean, the temple is no longer a, a, a stone structure. They're just up from where they're speaking at. The temple is now the people of God. And the Spirit is dwelling not in our building, but in us. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God? And so here's this incredible change taking place as God not only lives among his people, but lives in his people. And so the promise of Joel is finally taking place. And boy, everybody just is like, in the world is going on. I mean, the apostles leave the house. They go. We don't know where they go. I'm going to make a suggestion here in just a second uh, because it's really neat what archaeology is doing over there right now. But anyway, they come to where the people are gathering and they're going, what in the world's going on? And of course, some of them are saying they're drunk. Listen to them. They're just mumbling nonsense. Yeah, because you don't understand what they're saying. And then Peter stood up. You need to pause and let this sink in. Then Peter stood up. I mean, have you ever had someone to tell you, when are you going to stand up? When are you going to take a stand? When are you going to be someone? I mean, I've I've seen where, you know, conflict is fixing to break out. What happens? People begin to stand up. I mean, at least the ones that are planning on saying, I'm going to take a stand. And Peter stood up. And what I love about this is that if you know the story, you go back about 50 days earlier, and guess what? He's not standing up. He's backing down. Peter's followed the group that have arrested Jesus. They've gone into the courtyard of the high priest. He's sitting there warming himself in the fire as he's watching the trial of Jesus, his rabbi, when a servant girl comes up and looks at him and says, this man was with him. What does Peter do? What does the rock do? The rock backs down. I don't know him, woman. He gets nervous. He goes to the gate because he doesn't want to be discovered. Another servant sees him and says, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. No, I wasn't. And then finally the people around the fire says, You've got to be one of them. You're a Galilean. And of course you're like, What does that mean? That means it's like, you know, I mean, you're, you ever heard someone talk and immediately said, They're not from around here. I mean, you ever done that? I mean, someone that their their accent lets you know that, wow, they were raised somewhere else. My boys always laugh because whenever we would go back for Thanksgiving to Mississippi, as soon as I crossed the Mississippi border, I'm serious as a heart attack, folks, my accent would change. I mean, some of y'all are going, you mean the accent you have is not Mississippi? Not true Mississippi. And I would change, and my boys would immediately say, Dad, why does your accent, why do you start using words you don't use up in Tennessee? And, and y'all, i got to be honest with you, I don't know. It's going back into that culture. These guys were all Galileans. They had a specific accent, and Peter's betrayed him. And so what does he do? He collapses. He doesn't stand up. He doesn't pull a sword. He doesn't step forward. He backs down, but not anymore. Fifty days later, he stands up, and he doesn't stand up by himself. He stands up with the rest of the eleven who had all fled into the darkness that night. And they all stand up, and they raise their voices. And listen to what Peter says. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I'm fixing to say to you. And again, my question is, where in the world are these people that God's raised up, where are they preaching at? What's going on here? 
recently, and Stan and I have been talking about this because it's just so exciting. This is a recent redrawing of what they, is believed to be the Pool of Siloam. Okay, the Pool of Siloam. You may remember the story in the Gospel of John where Jesus comes to Jerusalem. There's a man who's been born blind, and the disciples say, Who sinned? Did he sin? Or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus said, Neither. He reaches down, he spits in the ground, he makes mud, put on the man's eyes, and sends him to this pool. Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Why? Because that's where everybody went to wash. You see, this pool right here is a baptistry. Now, we have a large baptistry here. Let me tell you. I mean, Hendersonville's got one of the nicest, nicest baptistries around, but it doesn't touch this one. This one they, they thought, they think, was about two uh, uh, Olympic swimming pools big. And, and it was used by people who were going up to the temple. You see, you go to the temple, but before you could go in the temple, you had to be immersed, men and women alike. And so they would come to a pool like this, and they would go, and they would immerse themselves in the water. And then there was a walkway that was about a half a mile. You see it down here on the, on the bottom, the recreation of it. But there's a walkway that takes you right into the south entrance of the temple, right at a half mile away. And so on Pentecost, it would have been thousands and thousands of people being immersed in this pool and then heading up toward the temple. By the way, here's the excavations of that pool just recently released. I mean, they were, they were digging a water line in Jerusalem. And by the way, when you dig in Jerusalem, guess what you do? You find history. And, and they've started uncovering the pool of Siloam. And, and hopefully, with our trip to Israel this year, we may get a chance to go and see this. I would love to see this. Because Jesus, Jesus, no doubt, went to this pool from time to time. And then they would come up, and if you look way over to the left, you'll see the Siloam Street. There's this walkway that led up to the south side of the temple. This is the south side of the temple. This all has been excavated now. You can actually sit on those steps right there today, just like Jesus would have walked up, up them, you know, 2,000 years ago. And I can't help, now I can't say for certain this is where they preached, but this would have been a very likely place right outside the temple, crowds coming up. You know, the street from Siloam, baptized, ready to go into the temple. When Jesus says, guess what? You need to be immersed one more time, but in a different name. And so Peter gets up wherever they were, and he says, listen, we're not drunk. And by the way, I love the answer he had for that. He says, just 9 o'clock in the morning. Jesus knew about, I mean, John, uh, Peter, excuse me, I'll get it right here in a minute. Peter knew about getting drunk. And you, you aren't drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. By the way, this is time of the grape harvest. The wine is new wine. And, and so it's not had time to ferment thoroughly. And that's what he literally says. They were drunk on new wine. No, no, no. You don't get dr drunk on new wine at 9 o'clock in the morning. Robert Stein, in writing about this very text, said that in most cases, your bladder would have worn out before you had got tipsy. I mean, that's how little alcohol was in new wine. And so the, Peter says, no. That's not what is going on. What's going on here is what the prophet Joel predicted. And I can almost hear the silence go over the crowd. Prophet Joel? Yeah. Something all of them had read. Something all of them had anticipated. Something all, all of them had believed would one day happen. And so Peter says, 
in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Now, it'd be one thing if Joel was the only one that said it, but it wasn't just Joel. Isaiah 44, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. As if that's not enough, Ezekiel, when they're in exile, I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. And, and so I don't care where you went into the prophets, there was this promise that a day was coming when God's spirit would be poured out on all people. And Peter says that's exactly what's happened. You go on to the end of the sermon. And Peter says, after they ask, what should we do? He says, you need to repent, be immersed again. Most of the people had probably already been immersed that morning. You need to go do it again, this time in the name of Jesus. And he says, you'll have your sins forgiven, and you'll receive the same gift we have. And by the way, it's not just for you, but it's for your children and for all who are far off. We're 2,000 years away. That's far off. But the promise is still as valid to us today as it was to them on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. I'll pour out my spirit on you. And so Peter goes on in the sermon, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth. Thousands of people are gathered. We don't know how many. I suspect it was at least maybe 8, 10, 15,000. And when he said Jesus of Nazareth, you had people who knew immediately who he was talking about. And then you had others from all of these other countries going, who's Jesus of Nazareth? You can imagine the whispering going on in the crowd as people were saying he was crucified back at Passover. But he was a great man. He was a miracle worker. You can imagine all the talking going on in the crowd as Peter's up there saying, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you. You saw the miracles. You saw the signs. You saw the wanders. You met the man who had got his sight because he went down and washed in the pool of Siloam. God did this among you, and you know it full well, at least the people there in Jerusalem. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate, you remember the word plan? There it is. He was delivered to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God had known this was going to happen. Jesus had known it was going to happen. He kept telling his apostles it was going over their head. And you, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. Jesus, miracle worker. Jesus, crucified on a cross. Jesus, buried in a grave. And Jesus raised from the dead by God. Keep that in your mind. No one had anticipated it. Not, not the resurrection. The apostles didn't believe it. Mary Magdalene didn't believe it. I mean, Mary, the mother of Jesus, didn't believe it. Nobody had believed it. In fact, the religious leaders came to Pilate after they had buried him and said, Listen, he claimed that he was going to rise again. Could you at least send guards to the tomb? What? To keep him in the grave. He didn't believe he was coming out of that grave. He was dead. Keep his disciples from stealing the body. Notice the language there. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal the body, and tell the people he's been raised from the dead. But we all know that can't happen. And so when Peter got up and said, God's raised him from the dead, 
Tons of people knew that's what Jesus claimed. And now Peter's saying it actually happened. Freeing him from the agony of death. That phrase there, freeing him from the agony of death, over in the book of Hebrews, talks about Jesus, how he had to become like us. He had to take on flesh and blood like us. And the reason was so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And then look at the yell from the book of Hebrews. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. At Sister Faye's funeral on Friday, Keith was, was talking about death. And, and while death sometimes when a loved one is suffering comes as relief, I appreciate what Keith said. Keith said, I hate death. It is our enemy. It is not our friend. And, and, and Keith said, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And guess what? I don't know of any of us that do. I mean, would we die? Yes, for our loved ones, for our friends. You know, I mean, there are moments that we would give our lives for others, but it's not that like we would want to. And here's the Hebrew writer saying, guess what Jesus' resurrection did? Jesus' resurrection said God not only raised him, but he can raise us as well, and it frees us, who all of our lives have been held in slavery by our fear of death. My dear friend, Last summer, he was dying. We were praying together. He was actually leading the prayer. And he prayed this. He said, Lord, you know, I fear death. I fear everything about it. And yet, Lord, I know you'll be there with me and walk with me through that valley. And I'll sit there and I'll listen to him pray with such incredible honesty and yet with incredible faith. And that's exactly what Jesus' resurrection does for all of us. Because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I love this passage out of John. The reason my father loves me is I lay my life down. I mean, listen to what Jesus says. Only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. The Romans didn't take it from him. Pilate didn't take it from me. The Jewish leaders didn't take it from him. He laid it down of his own accord. And he says, but if I lay, uh, if I lay it down of my own accord, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again, which is exactly what he had done. Acts 2 is a quote, verses 25 to 27 of Psalm 16. As Peter says, by the way, you remember the old song? I think sometimes we fail to realize that the Psalms were actually songs. And it would be like, Blake, me getting up here going, amazing grace. You know, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And Peter starts quoting a song. They had all sung, perhaps even that week. He says, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I'll not be shaken. Therefore, my body is glad, my tongue rejoice. My body, my body will also rest in hope because you'll not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your Holy One's body even see decay. He says, the prophets predicted it. We've sung it. Now will you believe it? God has raised him, this Jesus, to life, and we're all witnesses. He's exalted to the right hand of God. I love that quote there. And he's poured out the Holy Spirit, but exalted to the right hand of God. Immediately goes to Psalm 110, most quoted Old Testament te text in the Bible, in the New Testament. 
I mean, he goes to Psalm 110 and he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Peter says that has happened. We're witnesses of it. Now, what are you going to do? Because all of Israel needs to be assured God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And the people don't know what to do. It's all true. I mean, they're witnesses of the resurrection. By the way, the, the, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, they had been witnesses of Lazarus' resurrection. And their answer to that was, let's kill him again. Only problem is Jesus is no longer on the earth. He's at the right hand of God in fulfillment of the prophecies that all of them believed in. And so the people simply said, what do we do? What do we do? By the way, what you've heard this morning is the gospel. As simple, as simple as it can be presented. Jesus lived. He died. He was raised again. And he's been exalted to the right hand of God. That's the gospel. And by the way, it's not just the gospel, but it's the power that saves if there's anything I can say to any of us, y'all, conversion is not the result of our words. It's not the result of our stories. It's not the power of our persuasion. It is the power of the story of Jesus of Nazareth. If we want people to come to God, we just simply need to tell the story. And that's what Peter did on the day of Pentecost. Paul, years later, would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God that brings salvation. Writing to the Corinthians, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Lift him up. That's all he asks us to do. Tell the world of Jesus. So Peter simply said, you won't know what to do? Repent. Go back into the pool and be immersed again. You got to realize Jews were immersed all the time. They were immersed every Saturday before they went to the synagogue. They were immersed every feast day before they went into the temple. They were, were immersed every time they touched a dead body, every time they touched a Gentile. You name it, they had to be immersed for it. And all at once, here's Peter saying, can I tell you how many more immersions you need to do? As far as God is concerned, one more. Just one. In the name of Jesus, and your sins will be washed away, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, God's promise made to you, your children, and all who are coming. And by the way, that response is still the response we need to give today. It is that simple. And so this week as you go, go back and reread Peter's sermon. It's not long. I mean, I'm the only person that can take a seven-minute sermon and make it 30 minutes, right? I'm serious. You read it, and you're like, that took seven minutes. How come you, it takes you 30 minutes? I, I get it, okay? Reread Peter's sermon. Let it sink in. That's the gospel. And if you read the rest of the sermons in the book of Acts, guess what? That's what you read over and over again. It's the story of Jesus. Reread Peter's sermon. Number two, answer this simple question. Have you obeyed Peter's answer to the crowd's question? Because that, that, that question is still valid today. 
What do we do? Because my sins, your sins, they put Jesus on the cross. So in response to that, what do we do? And the answer is, obey the same commands Peter told them to obey. And then this week, would you have the courage to simply tell this simple story? About Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. And if we want to see a revival like we've never seen before, we simply need to tell the world about Jesus. Don't know where you are today in response to these questions, but if you need to answer the question, we have elders that will be in the back foyer, front foyer. If, if following our services, if you need prayers, go seek them out. If you'd like to arrange baptism, go and seek them out. If you'd like to be baptized right now, I'll be right down here. You can come right now. Let's together we stand and sing. We will.